Rare Book School is a demonstration of the interchangeability of parts. One day they're a student, the next day they're a lecturer. Michael Suarez is attending the Teaching Ministry to Book class at Rare Book School this week, and he is this evening's lecture. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to Rare Book School. And this is what he wrote. Thou shalt not do as the dean pleases. Thou shalt not write thy doctor's thesis on education. Thou shalt not sit with statisticians nor commit now, Auden's advice is clearly salutary. Auden gave many good tidbits. He was an expert at the phone. One of the best things he ever said, which we will try to disprove this very evening, is this. Auden said, a professor is someone who talks in someone else's sleep. Now, the lights are down, we've been in class all day, will we prove this true or false? I'm not sure. Often said, thou shalt not sit with statisticians nor commit social science. But for the past four years, I have been wrestling with that database, which many of you will know, the English short title catalog. And I wanted to ask some simple and some difficult questions of that database for the 18th century as part of my work as editor for the Cambridge History of the Book in Britain, Volume 5, that goes from 1695 to 1830. So I decided to undertake a systematic analysis of the ESTC for the 18th century. The ESTC, for those of you who don't know, is a record of every book published in Britain or her dependencies in any language, and a record, at least in the 18th century, of every book published in English anywhere in the world. So the first thing I had to do was determine what my method was going to be. And so I decided to take years ending in three, and I was later on going to do all the years ending in eight, but alas, I ran out of time, and dare I say, patience. So running the ESTC and getting these records here for all imprints in the world, we immediately see a number of pretty interesting things, like this tremendous growth through here, for example. Or even the fact, strangely, that in 1703, we don't have the smallest number, but rather in 1723, something we think that has everything to do with the South Sea bubble and the financial crash that took place in London and in Paris and had a big impact on the low countries around 1720. Less capital, fewer books. Um, but also 
look how low this number is. There's a recovery, but not so great. Does this have anything to do with demographics, perhaps? Um, for example, we know that from about 1725 to about 1728, we experienced in England the highest peacetime mortality ever recorded. So immediately just doing this, we begin to get some kind of shape as to what's happening in the book trade, albeit a very crude one, as I will emphasize. Now, I needed to take out all the non-UK publications in the colonies and so on, but I left in Ireland. I left in Ireland because I wanted to think about the British Isles in a market. And since Ireland was so close by, and we know that Irish books were coming into the north of England, and we know that they were also going to America, I wanted to keep it in. Now, this is a very interesting story in its own right, publishing in English, not in the UK over time, but it's a story we'll need to tell on another evening, perhaps. So, after factoring out for all the bibliographical variants that the ESCP lists, and then subtracting all the geographic undesirables, I came up with a key number, a kind of baseline for every year. Here, just note that from 63 here to 73, that increase is 19%. From here to here, that increase is 15 and from here to here, that increase is 44%. Something is happening. What are the numbers telling us? How far can we trust them? Should we pay attention to particulars or trends? What do the numbers mean? And how could we use these numbers? In the course of four years, I looked at 34,000 335 records and plotted, that is to say, recorded and then used in my calculation, 134,733 data points. Now, how much can that be trusted? Was the game worth the candle? So I wanted to uh, analyze the record by um, in a number of ways. And one way was by genre. I wanted to analyze the record in terms of format. I wanted to see what it was doing in terms of length of publication and so on. But the first one we'll look at is genre here. And you'll see some of the categories that I came up with. Agriculture, almanacs, biography, business and finance, children's books, entertainment, leisure and travel, history, geography, military affairs, and so on. So what I tried to do was set up a protocol for each one of these categories. But I'd like to emphasize that these are decisions that have to be made, some more arbitrary than others. You all understand that anything to do with history is a critical enterprise, and as you'll all remember, the word critical comes from the Greek word for the one who sits in the judgment seat. So bibliography is a critical enterprise, which it is, so too is book history, and one has to sometimes sit in the judgment seat and make determinations. 
not always on great data. But there they are. There are the categories. There are a number of interesting things to learn from this histogram, or as you remember from when you were in the third grade, that bar graph. So each one of these equals 100%. And dare I say, with the pretty colors, we can see a little bit about what's happening to the genre. The first thing to notice immediately is what's happening to religion, philosophy, and ethics. We start out here at about 34%. We end up there at about 16%. Now, this isn't the numbers printed. It's often very hard to determine. This is, about, this is only about titles. And therefore, we have to be very, very clear that this is an extremely crude measure. It takes no account whatever of addition size. Because we often don't have the data. Nemo Jacob non have No one can give what he does not have. We don't know, <laughs> we can't tell. Now, we know that the survival rates for religious literature are extremely low. Dean Green has done very good work on that. Not for Bibles per se, but for a lot of religious Catholics, for example. John Barnard has done some very good statistical analysis on this, too. So how representative is this, and, and to what degree can we trust the decline? Well, it seems to me the trend, at any rate, is quite clear. Notice, too, politics, government, and law is the next largest category, and that together, for much of the century, those two categories make up more than 50% of the surviving output as recorded in the English short title catalog. This, methinks, ought to make us reconsider how we do book history. Because if you look at the papers given at Sharp from year to year, about 50% of them, at least, are on literary topics. Hmm. But literature is not nearly so big as some of these other categories. Take politics, government, and law for a moment, if you would. These graphs seem complicated at first, but they're actually very simple. Here we have the raw number of publications, and this graph will help us understand what those numbers are. And here we have the percentage of the total. What's the percent that they make up? The total output for that year. Remember, we're only talking about surviving output. My own calculations from looking at advertisements and printers' ledgers suggest that at least 10% of the printed record across the board is missing for the 18th century, not in the ESPC. At least 10%. Why is it that we continually use a tool without ever calibrating that tool, without ever understanding the tolerances of that tool, and therefore the kind of certainty that we can make about the statements that we you know, are trying to come up with when we employ that tool? seems to be a major methodological problem in contemporary bibliographical studies right now. But note this. Here, we're humming along, if we do a linear regression here, we see it runs just about perfectly through 25%. And yet, the number of books triples, more than triples, from 
slightly less than 400 to over 1,200. It triples the space of A nice example to bear in mind when we're thinking about the explosion of print culture in the 18th century. This is medicine, mathematics, and science, and we go from about 2% of the output here to about 7%, and um, this represents about 50 books here, 60 books per annum that goes down a little bit. This represents here, if you see, about 220 books per annum, 60 to 220 every year. And I've checked this stat against a number of the other years to see if it's not just a cohort effect. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the argument. Medicine and science go from 50 titles to 220 titles per year. Every year, something radical is happening. Look what's happening to business and finance. Plugging along here, not very interestingly, it seems to me, and all of a sudden, it begins to take off. Well, right when it's taking off, in these later decades here, these last five decades, what's happening? Banking reform, change in risk conveyance and insurance, changes in the way that bills of exchange are being handled both nationally and locally, the rise of entrepreneurship in the UK because of changes in financial infrastructure and concomitantly changes in physical infrastructure. So, for example, a lot of the titles in here have to do with um, proposals for building canals and um, making ad hoc share corporations to fund just such public projects or physical infrastructure that will then feed what we might very loosely call the Industrial Revolution, an overused term. That 16% here in business and finance ends up being the 16% in religion, philosophy, and ethics. So at the end of the century, in 93, I the number of publications, and again, we can't overemphasize the, you know, the reliability of the data. This is not apodictic in any way. Is this more than coincidence? You can run a number of regression analyses and see how good the data is, and it's not bad. But what's interesting here is that we see that religion and philosophy of ethic and ethics clearly has a downward trend, something we saw in the bar graph as well. I mentioned the study of literature as a staple of book history. And you think of the 18th century as being that time, most of us anyway, when the novel was invented. You think about the code, Richardson, Fielding, Stern, and so on, Um, Look at that. That's 0.05%, ladies and gentlemen. For the first five decades of the 18th century, fiction makes up 0.05% of the annual output. Hmm. It begins to go up, of course, until it reaches an astonishing high of about 3.5. Yeah, 3.4, something like that. So. It's pretty low. It, it never goes. It never goes very high at all. And I think that's important to bear in mind that 
uh, sometimes our sensibilities are skewed by the kind of books that we look, look at. Now, fiction as a percentage of literature, too, is very low indeed all through here and then begins to take off and achieve greater prominence. So uh, somebody like James Raven's excellent book, Judging New Wealth, would help to explain how fiction was marketed to the popular uh, public in order to achieve that kind of prominence. But the numbers are still low, low, low. And we might think of fiction, therefore, as a kind of luxury commodity, which has a very high price structure. and children's books? Four uh, percent? No. Why? Because anybody who studies survival rates at all knows that educational and children's books have the worst survival rate of all. So that this data cannot be trusted in any way. If we look at the Acker's ledger, we know that Dice's Guide to the English Tongue over a period of six years had 33 editions, and we know what the count is because we have the printer's ledger, a mere 270,000 <laughs> books in those 16 years, five books in three editions throughout. Five books in three editions are in the ESPC. Okay, and really, three books are in the ESPC because only three editions are represented. Everybody understand that? If we look at Holman Turpin's um, publisher of children's books in the 18th century, we know that about 75% of the titles that he published in the 18th century don't exist in a single He's not exceptional in any way. So, if that's the case, then we could sit with statisticians, we could say, well, I did the math. Well, I have somebody who works for Pfizer helping me with the regression analysis. Well, I was trained as a population biologist as a boy. You know, I know what I'm doing with the numbers. These are the statistics, and I spent a lot of time and money to get them. And indeed, how far can you trust any of it? 
So, for example, another notorious case are the almanacs. If we look at the station of company records, we know how lucrative the almanac trade was and how ferociously the station of company protected its monopoly. But if we look at the Boyer ledgers, for instance, and we look up the printing of, say, Goldsmith Almanac, we know that it was printed every year, but we also know that most of the years that it was printed, no copy survived in the ESPC once it's data. Hmm. A problem. What if we were to turn to place of publication? something that maybe seems a little bit more reliable in some aspect. We see the domination of London and the home counties, and then a grouping here of various um, regions, and at the very bottom, I tried to group them into the south and the middle and the north, um, just to get a sense of the movement of books and, and the possibility of markets. But even here, we need to think about artifacts in the data. Even here, we need to remember that it's extremely likely that books printed in London and the home counties are likely to be bigger, are likely to have more sheets, are likely to have a much higher survival rate because they were in the depressed ones. There's some notable exceptions that So immediately, and we know from a number of other um, ways of thinking about the ESPC and how it was put together, that provincial printing is underrepresented in the ESPC, in the English short title catalog for the 18th century. So one can compile these numbers, one can use them, and yet at the same time, one must place them in radical doubt. So here you see, generally speaking, London and the home counties, here uh, Scotland, the blue for Scotland, here the green for Ireland. Notice that if we look right through the century here, at that 80% mark, the degree to which Scotland and London just alone really, really dominate. Let's take a look at that briefly. This is London and the home counties. It's pretty obvious. I, I won't belabor it. This downturn here in the percent of total is because of the rise of provincial publishing. Here we see Scotland far more volatile than one might ordinarily imagine in terms of uh, the percent of total. Um, why this takes off toward the end, I'm not clear. And if anybody has any good explanations, I'd, I'd like to hear why we see this jump. because. I haven't been able to um, figure it out myself. Here we see Ireland. And if, if we look at publications in Ireland, there's about a steady 8% here running through. But how might we explain this here? I think the answer is because of George Faulkner and the publishing activity of Faulkner, the leading publisher in Dublin at this time. A very high number of his books survive, and we know a lot about Faulkner's activities. And again, were there other people after Faulkner started publishing who took up in the market, but whose works haven't been published, uh, haven't been taken up by ESTC? It's very difficult to know. This is provincial England. 
see how low the, the percentages are, and indeed even the numbers of provincial books are. You'll get a lot of rhetoric, it seems to me, that with the lack of licensing in 1595, provincial publishing took off, there was a press in every town, and they started making books. I don't think so. Many of them had all they could do to keep the newspaper running. And, and that seems to be an important thing to bear in mind, that um, the kinds of things that are going to survive are disproportionately low, certainly. But also that book publishing is not a common feature of provincial England for a long time. Again, we're talking about fiscal infrastructure and we're talking about physical infrastructure. So here if we combine provincial England, Scotland, and Wales, we see something rather different. The numbers begin to go up. There is a steady trend here, no question, and it's that trend that we should pay attention to more than the particular numbers, it seems to me. So if we look briefly at format, we see that the main formats make up about 80% of the total. I'm talking folios, talking quartos, I'm talking octavos and duodecimos. So the main formats seem to make up about 80%. Then we need to ask ourselves again some pretty tricky questions about survival rates. This is the breakdown by format of the four principal formats. We have octavos, we have in black here the duodecimos, we have the folios and the quartos here. But many of you will remember Roger Stoddard's law. Bigger books linger longer. Little books last least. Right? Take yourself so you remember. <laughs> Bigger books linger longer. Little books last least. Well, if that's true, and it is true, Roger Stoddard is a man who knows what he's talking about, then this number should be up, and this number should be up too, clearly. Because the folios will survive disproportionately. And we can see something of that here. Now, we see in 93 that the number of folios represents about, mm, let's call it, I don't know, 10% for argument's sake. Well, a number of you may recall, I'm sure a number of you know, that Boswell records in his diary for the 13th of January, 1790, that he went to Edmund Malone and he said, you know, I've got this great idea. I'm going to publish The Life of Johnson in one volume folio. Now, Edmund Malone was no fool. He knew a lot about books and the book trade, and he said, you might as well throw it in the tent. Nobody reads a folio these days. For divinity, for patristics, for family Bibles. And so, as we all know, Boswell uh, decided to publish in Porto instead, and that, that changed a lot. But 10% seems pretty high for Malone to make his observation. Nobody reads a folio nowadays. Hmm. So that suggests the artifactual nature of the data, it seems to me. 
other times we can have pretty simple explanations, like here, the way the quarto is just falling, falling, falling. Well, of course, because quartos were used as plays for publishing play text, and there's a marked switch in the publishing of play text in the early 18th century for publishing of drama, I'm saying play text, not play text, I promise. Okay, so there's a market fall here because one of the main markets for the quarto was for drama that shifts to smaller formats. Of course, those of you who are interested in paper know better than I do that the size of the sheet also gets bigger and that makes the smaller format more accommodating. So the octavo between 50 and 60 percent almost certainly should be higher and so too for the duodecimo. It's interesting here perhaps to think about is the one sheet format. These include both single pamphlets, the folded sheet, and if you will, broadside. It's perhaps interesting to think about is this here and this here. Is it really true that at the beginning of the century and at the end of the century there are a lot more one sheet formats than in the middle? That seems counterintuitive. And I think if we interrogate the data here, what we find is that there are substantial collections of ephemera that concentrate late in the century and early in the century in their collections. And these collections are recorded in the SPC. And therefore, the whole graph should probably be somewhere up in here and that the one-sheet formats are actually, in fact, a much higher percentage of publishing than we might ordinarily think, again, because of their low survival rate. So finally, if we, if we look at the length here of the publication, we tend to think of the 18th century as a time when there are a lot of books published, but if you look at one sheet and two to 10 sheets, over 80% of the books for most of the period are 10 sheets or fewer. And if we remember that little book last week, then this number again needs to be much, much higher. And there are good financial reasons why the vast majority of books published in the 18th century are 10 sheets or fewer. And that is because the huge amount of capital that one has to tie up in typesetting, printing, paper, and so on, and that's going to tie up capital for a very long period of time. So you want to get the maximum out of your investment. A lot of people don't have a lot of capital. Cash flow is a major problem, especially with the extended credit terms, 18 months routinely given to a customer who's a, you know, um, investing a London bookseller, 18 months to pay with no reason. So you've got to publish shorter things so that you don't go bankrupt. So the one sheet clearly needs to be higher. There's just no question. The two to ten sheets probably should be higher again because they are little books and they are going to last less. It seems to me interesting that the number of big books is going up during the century. And that may be because of changes in capitalization. That may be because of the improvement in the paper trade, the domestic paper trade uh, in, in England itself. 
Um, I'm not really sure why the number of, as it were, longer books is, is able to rise the way it does. Again, I would welcome to hear your input. But I have a theory about why books 21 sheets and over go down, and that is because of the increase in multi-volume books. And of course, the increase in multi-volume books goes with the circulating library and so on. And I needn't, I needn't rehearse that story here. We see that although the numbers are still very small, multi-volume books, especially in this lower end of the market, is going up and up and up. Of course, we have to bear in mind that multi-volume works have higher survival rates than single-volume works. And so is there any way to use some of this data to think about survival rates for single-volume works? I'm working on that right now as a kind of mathematical problem, but I'm not very hopeful that I'll be able to learn very much. The number of books greater than five volumes, look at the scale, goes up almost not at all, 0.1% over the 18th century. Very curious, especially when we think about some of those changes in the book trade. But that's what the data tells us, and we need to think about it. The next reflection might remind us that on the one hand, we need to investigate the surviving record. We need to try to get as much as we can out of what we have. But at the same time, even as we are doing so, we should bear in mind that an important epistemological principle that all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. Thank you.